Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I've just realized that this is the 15th podcast in the series, uh, and I'm hoping that people are finding that they contain not just my opinions, but uh, some facts that they might not be picking up otherwise about what's happening in the defence domain. Now, because I had quite a lot to say about submarines, in particular nuclear-powered submarines, in the last edition, I wasn't going to bring the topic up again. It was just a little piece of information that I thought I should share with people, and that's at the moment, in the UK, all six British nuclear-powered attack submarines, SSNs, are tied up at Faz Lane. Um, a lot of secrecy surrounds uh, submarine operations for fairly obvious reasons. I assume that this is just a, a coincidence, a temporary overlap of a couple of submarines coming off some very long patrols and um, others that are probably just about to uh, start or complete a maintenance period. But nevertheless, I bring it up just to, again, illustrate the point that just buying nuclear-powered submarines doesn't fix all of your problems. You need a lot of them. Nuclear-powered submarines require a lot of maintenance. And again, in the context of the Australian nuclear-powered submarine endeavour, I just don't feel that we hear anything about that at all. The basic point is that one or two or even three nuclear-powered submarines doesn't necessarily guarantee you the capability to have a submarine available. As I say, Britain at the moment, all six of them are tied up alongside at Faslane. Now, a bit of good news. In the last podcast, I was expressing my doubts about securing an interview with the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Hammond. His office tells me that is going ahead. So fingers crossed that, that nothing goes adrift before that takes place. Uh, but that in no way undercuts the point that I've been making repeatedly about defence and secrecy. And I'm going to come back to that a little later on in this podcast. Normally, the, the general public, it would seem to me, just couldn't care less about issues of, of secrecy. It doesn't affect their daily lives. But there are a couple of current cases where people across the country are starting to realise that secrecy has consequences that they don't necessarily like. The first ongoing issue in the commercial domain is why the government has blocked additional flights for Qatar Airlines to Australia, which would add more competition and lower prices. The government is being very slippery, very disingenuous with this, and you can tell that it's starting to gain traction, that there are a whole lot of people who are now thinking, well, what are the reasons? It's not making sense. Surely we can get to the bottom of it. Now, another one, same, getting a little bit of traction. The government, well, under the previous coalition government, tightened up information being released about ministers' use of VIP aircraft, citing security grounds that I don't think have any real basis. In fact, we're now finding out that the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, has racked up $3.5 million worth of VIP flights. The government won't say to where, but the suggestion is that he has been taking these flights from Canberra to 
Avalon Airport to save himself some driving time between Avalon and his home. Now, these are the practical consequences of, of secrecy. It's not just journalists getting frustrated and journalists not being able to properly do their job. Large numbers of people can now see that by keeping stuff secret, it's a recipe for bad government. It's just a matter of common sense. The easiest and by far the cheapest way to guarantee high quality government is for there to be as much transparency as possible. If if people, be they politicians or, or bureaucrats, or even in business has to operate under certain rules of disclosure, it's just a way of maximizing the chances that everybody that everything is going to be above board. As I say, I'll come back to that because I'm going to do the, the story of Air Force people running and hiding. Now, another bit of good news. Uh, the big procurement announcement of the last uh, few days was the award of Air 6500 Phase 1 to Lockheed Martin. Personally, I think that that was an excellent decision. Two companies had been shortlisted, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin. My own feeling, which I've expressed in writing, and uh, I think also on previous podcasts, is that particularly from an Australian industry point of view, I thought that the Lockheed Martin offer contained more work and more innovative work, if I can put it like that. You know, it's always sad in, in a company when you lose a bid, so I know that people in Northrop Grumman will be hurting. Life goes on. There's usually just a single winner for, for these sorts of things, so the fact that they missed out doesn't harm their future prospects. The interesting thing, though, that I found about this selection of Lockheed Martin is that it pretty obviously runs completely counter to the advice of the Defence Strategic Review. The DSR was extremely scathing of the defence process to date, saying that they were going in the wrong direction, that the solution that they were pursuing, which I took to be the Lockheed Martin solution, was for an indefinite timeline, and it would be for an unaffordable cost. Wow, that was a pretty heavy smackdown. But obviously, the defence have said, forget that, we're just going to go ahead. And of course, that raises the question, what else in the DSR is defence going to ignore when it doesn't suit them? Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the DSR. I've ex uh, expressed that before. Uh, for me, I didn't see anything particularly strategic about the way that they went through the process. To me, it seemed to be more a collection of ad hoc ideas and people's personal views rather than the end product of very detailed research and consultation. I might be able to say a little bit more about that in the future. Now, another thing that I noticed just in the last few days was that a publication called Tender Trace produced an online analysis of the last defence budget. It's publicly available, Tender Trace, all one word. And its findings, and this is based on fact, it's not their speculation, it's they've crunched the numbers. Defence spending in the last financial year declined by 18%. I mean, that's a huge hit, 18% less the, the reason for that, again, would seem to be 
because the DSR put everything on hold. It wasn't meant to. Well, that's what we were all told publicly. But the feedback, of course, that I and others got from industry was that stuff had ground to a halt. Now, rather than just repeating that over and over again, we can put a metric to it, defence spending down by 18%, and defence won't get that money back. I explained that in budgetary terms, that's it. There's just no mechanism for returning unspent money to the portfolio. So that's just gone. Another finding there, having analysed where that reduced amount of money is going, of the $12 billion that went on hardware, around 8% went to Australian-owned companies. 8%. So 92% of the defence spend went to foreign-owned entities, principally the United States and principally the foreign military sales system. Now, honestly, I've brought this up before, but again, I'm now able to put some hard numbers to it and say this overuse of the FMS system, just it's a critical issue. The government really needs to put more pressure on defence to explain why they want to get so much out of the FMS system and why they don't look at direct commercial sales or why why they don't look at spending the money in Australia. Every time an FMS purchase is recommended, there should be a red flag for it to be examined in more detail. Now, another little part of the Defence Strategic Review, a well-connected source suggested to me that the development in Australia of the MQ-28A Ghost Bat, this is being done by Boeing and Boeing Australia and a number of Australian entities, that the DSR is being used as an excuse to shift a lot of that work from Australia to the United States. And the DSR at paragraph 8.45 says, MQ-28A Ghost Bat is a sovereign autonomous air vehicle designed to operate as part of an integrated system of crewed and uncrewed aircraft and space-based capabilities. MQ-28A is intended to be an attributable platform which costs less than a crewed platform and can be replaced rapidly. And here's the critical sentence. This program should be a priority for collaborative development with the United States. Now, again, as I say, it's been suggested to me that this is being used as the excuse or cover to palm off more of the work to the US component of it on the basis that there are still, it's hard for me to believe, but there are still a number of Air Force officers who don't believe that uncrewed systems are suitable for combat. Yes, yes, that's fine for surveillance. It might be fine for air-to-air refueling, but no, when it comes to combat, it needs to be humans and preferably at that guys with moustaches. Now, at the moment, this is only a suggestion, but I'm keeping an eye on this one and I'll be coming back to you uh, in the not-too-distant future. Well, I'll come back, particularly if I can find out a little bit more of a substance. Okay, coming back to the culture of secrecy, and I've tried to set the scene by explaining why this is a bad thing. 
I have no problem and no journalist has a problem with certain things being kept secret, current operations, certain technologies. We all accept that for an unfriendly nation to be aware of these details would not be in the Australian national interest. But there are a whole lot of other things, just routine matters, that the Australian public are fully entitled to know what's going on. It's their money. It's taxpayers' money. The defense, the ADF, the Defence Forces, are there to protect Australian sovereignty and to protect Australian lives. They're meant to be part of the community. They should have a culture of openness and transparency, and they do not. Now, the example that I'd like to give actually goes back to 2011. So it's a little bit dated, but I can assure you that circumstances have not improved. In fact, they've got worse. And this was a visit that I and two other journalists had to to Tamworth to visit the base, the ADF Basic Flying Training School in 2011. It's managed by BAE Systems, and the, the structure of pilot training has changed, by the way. But but back then, all initial training was done in Tamworth before they went to East Sale and Pierce for the more complex high-end stuff. As a result of the visit to Tamworth, I wrote an article, and if I can be a little bit self-indulgent, I'll read from the first paragraph. The whole thing is available online. Okay, starts. A clear blue sky, an azure swimming pool, gym, the gentle buzz of light aircraft arriving and departing, everything neat and clean, attentive smiling staff. Could APDR have been transported to a resort for the ultra-rich in the Seychelles, or perhaps near Bora Bora, in our dreams. In fact, the location is the Tamworth Flying School, operated by BA Systems, and while it is not actually a tropical paradise, it is in fact very pleasant. Now, that was the start, so you can get the flavour of, of this. The company subsequently used that article as sort of part of their sales pitch to prospective students. I didn't write it for that for that purpose, but I had no problem at all with them using it. I'm doing this to, to set the, the scene. As well as Australian students who joined the ADF, there were also trainees from Singapore and Brunei. And what happened there was very basic. There's almost no military content whatsoever. That comes later in the careers of, of pilots. But basic flight training is the theory of flight some classroom stuff, and then in a very small single-engined plane with fixed undercarriage known as a CT4, uh, they do a number of hours and they gradually build up their level of proficiency. And as I say, a friendly and relaxed approach to the extent that we could tell, and this is what I'm leading to. Uh, in fact, when I went for my flight to give you an idea of of what it was like, after being uh, kitted up and being introduced to my flight instructor and seeing this very small aircraft, I expressed doubts as to whether it could take off with my bulk included. And, uh, and he explained to me, he said, uh, no, what we'll do is we'll just fly straight and level and we'll let the curvature of the earth do the hard work. So at the beginning, we had an initial briefing from BA Systems outlining the program. But then at the end of it came the statement, defence staff will acknowledge your presence but are not authorised to communicate further. What the... 
And we all thought and said, what is this about? What dimwit would come up with banning at such a basic training institution interaction with defence students and staff. It serves no purpose. The questions that we would have had if we had questions rather than just general chit-chat would have been, why do you want to be a pilot? Where are you from? Are you interested in helicopters or is it the fixed wing? And that, that sort of stuff. But no, completely banned, no interaction permitted and not even an excuse provided as to as to why that was the case. Now, who came up with that? Obviously, somebody in Canberra who had no idea of how the media works and who had probably never been to this basic flight training school but had simply seen a request media and reflexively said no. However, this isn't the worst part of it. And this is the part that stuck with me, and this is the part that I would like to emphasise. It was the interpretation of this instruction. We were there for 24 hours, and on three occasions, when we were walking down corridors to different meetings, we saw RAF personnel, all of whom immediately, on seeing us, ran back to their offices and closed the door, and in one case, we could hear very loudly the lock click. And I mean, what sort of nonsense is this? Were these people hiding under their desks rather than having to say hello to to a journalist? Well, the the level of fear did appear to be something like that. That, 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 that. My point is, what sort of appalling message did that behaviour and that instruction send out to the 70 or 80 Australian students who were on base, some of whom will undoubtedly end up in very senior positions in the ADF. Clearly, the message that they were getting from the memo and from this just ridiculous behaviour of their superiors was fear the media. The media are the enemy. Do not interact with the media. The media will destroy your careers. Now, I'm sure that all of those 70 or 80 students, again, have friends and family and things like that. Presumably, at least some of them would have been repeating this message. And it it helps explain when you become aware that this is presumably quite routine, and I can assure you this sort of behaviour continues to this day. In fact, as I say, for me, it, it seems to be getting worse. When you overlay that with draconian national security laws about releasability of information, Australia being one of the, you know, the least transparent Western democracies, it helps understand where we are in this climate. It's just not healthy. It's not good for the country. The fish rots from the head. It requires ministers, in particular Richard Miles and Pat Conroy, to lead the way and to also make it clear to senior people in the department that they are to be open, transparent, and helpful. Now, in the last 12 months, I and other journalists have spoken several times to senior Biden administration figures. I've had a couple of phone hookups with Kurt Campbell and possibly, he's very senior, uh, but Ambassador Daniel 
uh, Kreitenbrink. He is the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific. He regularly makes himself available for phone interviews. Last year, the United States Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall, visited Australia. I assume he was the one that insisted on speaking with Australian journalists. He regarded it as part of his job to brief us. We had a meeting in R1. Our chief of the Air Force, Air Vice Marshal Chipman, was there. Um, He looked like he really didn't want to be there. We've never seen him before or since. Anyway, it's Frank Kendall doing all of the, the, the talking. Again, um, as open and helpful as he possibly could be. Now, just a few months ago, another equally senior US military figure was in town, the Commandant of the US Marine Corps. He's just recently stepped down, David Berger. He wanted to speak to journalists. And when we asked him quite early in the piece, since the Australians, since our own people avoid us like the plague, we asked him, so why are you? Why do you want to do it? And he said, because it's healthy to have my ideas challenged. He said, I learn things by being asked questions. It allows me to understand your areas of interest. It allows me, when I go back to the United States, to use this experience that I've gained to share your views and your concerns with my colleagues. And by the way, he didn't quite say it this bluntly, but when you're a senior figure and on top of your brief, you should be able to answer questions from journalists. You shouldn't be running and hiding from them. And when when I come back to the Americans, I mean, I'd be you know, critical of Australia buying far too much hardware from the United States and various other things, loss of sovereignty with Virginia-class secondhand submarines. But on the positive side of things, the US system is open and transparent. We gain a lot of our information about what's going on from US sources and not from Australian officials and politicians, as should be the case. I cannot emphasize just how much, how lucid, intelligent, and helpful these senior American people are. It's not just part of their culture, it's part of their job. It's part of their job to explain to the outside world via the media what it is that they're doing, answer questions, provide information, try and make sure that we are as well informed as we possibly can be. That's the sort of openness and transparency that Australian officials should be striving for, and which is just sadly absent. Okay, uh, that's it for today. Again, I've uh, just slightly exceeding the time limit that I've set for myself. Next week, we might have a chat about helicopters, a topic that gets people angrier than just about anything else that I'm aware of. Um, I've been collecting a bit more information about Taipan and Tiger, and rather than bringing it out in bits and pieces, I'll try and do it in one big concerted bundle. Thank you again for listening. See you next time. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.